Welcome to an edition of An Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill. And today, as usual, I'm extremely excited to have an outstanding guest by the name of Dr. Jane Donovan. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Could you explain a little bit about who you are and what you do, please? Yeah. So I am a teacher at Loyola Blakefield. And this year, I had the opportunity to teach a course called African American Voices. It's an elective course for seniors, and it counts as their English credit. The course, it's, 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 it's brand new to Loyola. We've never had a course that was devoted just to African American literature or his history. And um, I called it African American Voices because I was interested in doing something beyond just literature, not just fiction, but nonfiction, um, music, uh, film, primary source material. Um, and so far, so good. We've got eight students. They're very committed to the class. Um, our most recent project is partnering with Mr. Merrill. Um, on this artifactual journey, which kind of ties into um, where we started the class, which was looking at our each individual's connection to our slave, our country's slave past. That's exciting. Now, was this the, the fruits of your labor or did you sit down with other uh, staff members to create this cutting edge course? Um, who, what was the impetus behind this? So, um, since since I arrived at Loyola 11 years ago, um, this is something that I've been interested in in offering um, because my background is in my, my doctorate is in literatures of the African diaspora. And where did you get uh, that from? From Howard University. HBCU. Yes. And yeah. before after, that, I'm sorry. After that, before that, Morgan State University. And uh, before that, um, I studied in Nigeria. And what? really, yeah. I didn't know that. That's awesome. So yeah. you really are fulfilling your academic dream. I am, absolutely. And, and you know, this dream started when um, I was a young student at Loyola College. And my senior year uh, was the first time I had ever read a text by an African-American author. Say that again. Say that again. What First time. First time? In a Jesuit institution. Well, well, uh, what, what did you do in high school? No, nothing? Nothing. Okay. Nothing. Wow. So here I was, uh, you know, 20 years old, and um, I'm at a, a Jesuit institution in Baltimore City. My alma mater. Yeah, thank you. Right. All greyhounds go. <laughs> That's right. In which I am a minority. Yeah. And uh, there has been no conversation about African-American history or African-American literature. And I read Richard Wright's Native Son. Um, Classic. I couldn't, I, couldn't Classic. Move, I couldn't move from my chair. Mm. And uh, I really was stunned that um, this history and this really rich, the richest literature in my mind that exists was, was denied uh, to me. And, you know, here I go all the way to Nigeria only to define, really to find that what was as unfamiliar to me as, as a Nigerian history and culture was, you know, the African-American history in my own town. Right. And, um, and so that kind of set me on, on this journey. So I really wanted to offer that to Loyola students um, 
and had been in the courses that I had been teaching, but I hadn't had a chance to teach it you know, African-American literature exclusively. So this was the first time um, I got to do that. And um, the way that the course has evolved has really been organically um, in terms of what the plan was. I was using, I was teaching the course, wanted to do it chronologically. And I knew some of the uh, literature that I wanted to introduce, but what happened, the way that the direction of the course changed after the first day, um, the first day I asked the students why they took a course like this. And I asked them what they thought their own connection was to our country's uh, slave past. And um, I did some research myself and found that um, I believe that I'm connected to Joseph Donovan, who was one of the um, uh, biggest slave traders and dealers in, in, in Baltimore. Um, who had a pen on on Light Street and one on Pratt Street, and and a um, connection to the infamous Johns Hopkins University through the and, with his wife and so forth. That's right, and referenced referenced by Frederick Douglass in his narrative, and um, and I modeled this for the for the students, and then they came with their own stories, um, and they did some research into their genealogy. Um, as, the, as we were reading Frederick Douglass's narrative, and that's when it occurred to me, I of course should reach out to Mr. Merrill, who uh, I had come across many times, um, first as a friend, but then also in doing research over the years, um, you owned everything that I tried uh, to I, I Thank you for that compliment, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think you're a little overstating the uh, the accuracy there. Nanny Jack and Company does own quite a bit, but we do not own everything, right? So no, but when on. I was looking, when I was doing my research on Frederick Douglass with Living Classrooms and at Morgan State, your name kept coming up. And um, and so I thought it would be great for you to come to my class. First, we thought maybe it would be a tour of, of Douglass and, and others in Baltimore, but it what was the better fit is with this artifactual journey for you to start tying some artifacts to these stories that the students were um, realizing through doing their own genealogy, they had some connection to these larger kind of cultural stories of uh, related to African-American history. That's absolutely fascinating. And right now in 2022, how much of a benefit do you think this cutting edge collaboration has been for the students? Um, it's been, it's been enormous. Um, you know, this kind of course really is the best expression, I think, of what we as, as, as Jesuit educators, you know, in particular, what we're really called to do. And what I believe we're called to do is to really teach students how to find or discover or access what is true. And, you know, I had always done that as an English teacher through teaching literature and looking at these universal truths, but having a chance to do it through primary source material um, and finding a different kind of, uh, of truth and these narratives that also include those universal truths. Yes, yes. Has been so it's it's been so exciting to witness um it's also a really timely thing to do because our students live in a world and we live in a world where it's increasingly more difficult to find what is true 
um, you know. Say that and, again. Can you say that part again, please? That's so necessary. Say it again. <laughs> it's increasingly more difficult to find what is true. Yes. And I think, you know, that has to do with the fact that, you know, we have these very sort of large, I don't know, ecosystems of information and a giant gulf in between. But also the fact that when we're dealing with truths that have been buried and misrepresented and told from a different perspective, rather than, you know, the original source, um, it's very hard. I mean, I know that's what you're doing in in your work is is unearthing those things. Um, And so it all kind of comes full full circle to think about this course is called African-American Voices. And my idea was, okay, let's look at the different voices and the different, you know, mediums of expression. But what ends up happening right now is the students are involved in giving voice to these stories that really have been denied them in, in, in the way that they have been denied to me. Um, and so I think it's really kind of, that was sort of an accident. Um, you know, just, just a really fortuitous thing to happen to kind of reconnect with you and, and have this turn into something, um, even better than, than what I thought. So, well, and thank you for saying that. And I, I want to circle back for a moment. We made a, a physical appearance with hands on, and since then, we've been zooming in uh, once a week from a virtual perspective. And just this week, could you just give a truncated version of how one of your co-teachers was just all on board with, with the class? Right. Okay. So I was out uh, with, with COVID, and so I had to have um, my colleague, Edward Brown, um, lead the class and and set up the the teams or the zoom meeting um and so he asked if he could stay once he set up the meeting and and i kind of zoomed in and and mr merrill zoomed in and the kids were all settled he asked if he could stay and um and he participated from, boy, from did the he ever, boy did he ever participate or did he ever and it, you know he um he got so excited by the whole thing that the class continued. He told me, at, you know, after we had all left and he kept saying to the students, do you have any idea what just happened? And, you know, what the work that the, the, the importance of the work that you are doing. Um, and I think they had, but it was just really exciting for him to witness it because, um, you know, there, what's happening in the classroom with something like this doesn't have a lot of visibility, you know? Um, And I think it's because partially because people don't expect it and people don't know what they're supposed to be looking for. You know, that's that you, you said that very nicely. Um, Let me, let me go in a different direction for a moment. Something of this magnitude has been brewing for years at Loyal Blakefield. Is that not correct? Yes. Having yeah. some of the black alumni, Ralph Moore, Wesley Wood, and countless others, been working hard to come up with some type of uh, formula concept that could get something of this magnitude into the curriculum. They have. And in fact, um, what grew out of those conversations with a lot of the black alum is um, we set up um, a diversity and curriculum committee. Our, our principal set it up, um, Mr. Marania. And I was on that committee um, really to try to push 
to integrate our curriculum uh, more than it had to, had been. And, and I will say in the English department, this is something that we've been doing organically, naturally on our own independently. Um, but what Mr. Moranya was interested in doing is, is having more collaboration between the disciplines and the, and the departments and have it be um, kind of a more formal process of checking in with each department and saying, what does your curriculum look like and how does it, um, how is it able to access a diverse population? How does it represent a more diverse population? Um, and so, yes, this is something that is um, long overdue and what we're actively doing and we wanna be more formally doing. And so from a humanity, humanities perspective, couldn't this be dropped into other classes as well where we change some of the artifactual uh, journey research and, and so forth, but the concept of what we're doing with your class could apply to the sports history class, the civil rights class, to, to who knows whatever class. Oh yeah, right? absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, you would think that this would be a more natural fit in the history department. Right, um, oh, yes. Right? But, you know, the, the we work really closely um, with the history department because really our work is very similar. It's just that generally speaking, um, finding what is true, we're looking at fiction and they're looking at nonfiction. So, yeah. but yeah. we, you know, um, we still really stress that you have to come back to the primary source, whatever that is, whether it's right. the novel, you know, or, or the document, so. So th that's a perfect segue to some of the artifacts. Um, which one would, which, a couple of them, uh, I think you might really wanna talk about. So um, if I throw out four, I'm gonna let you pick which one we start with first, okay? The Frederick Douglass letter, mm -hmm. the Healy uh, uh, photograph, the William J. Simmons and the Men of Mark book and photograph, mm -hmm. or the New Jersey uh, slave document, or the last one will be a mortgage document tied into a Baltimore enslaved person. Which one would you like to start with? There, well, <laughs> you know, I think to, to me, what I've enjoyed the most is seeing um, the students have these kind of revelations. Um, and I love seeing the collaboration with, with students um, and how interested they get in each other's works. Could you share and an I example also, where one, one, one student was helping another student? I, I love that kind of energy as well. Yes. And so that one, the, the one that's, the, the two that stick out to me um, for those reasons are um, the Healy image. And then um, who's the New Jersey um, guy? James Herbert. Yes, or is that the one, the one who the slave comes to him and asks yeah, to that's be like, Yeah, that's, 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 yeah, that's the Archibald Mercer and James Herbert. Uh, okay, artifact. Mercer, yeah. that's right. Okay, so the first one, what I thought was really, really um, interesting is I was telling the students that the first things that I wanted them to do was what you had walked them through initially is what are your initial observations, right? Um, what questions do you have from those observations? And then, and then slowly over time, they started listing their discoveries. Um, and with those discoveries, I asked them to think about what kind of larger narratives those discoveries are connected to. 
So the Healy guy, after the first week, he makes, you know, his list of observations. <laughs> and um, he's like, look, I, my biggest question is why did Mr. Merrill give me somebody who was white? Right. And, um, <laughs> I thought this was supposed to be like, you know, African-American artifacts. And uh, this other kid, Jack Harry, is like, dude, he's not white. I love it. And I can hear him saying, dude, I, I love the fact that not white. he's not white. Right. And he's like, oh, and that guy, Jack Carey, who we call wiki man in the class because he's my research guy. He's if a question comes up, we ask Jack wiki man to look it up. So I, I, wiki, that's a great nickname. That's fabulous. Yes. So wiki man uh, starts doing his own research and says he's passing. Well, wait a minute. Fact, wiki man has a whole nother artifact, correct? Wikiman has a whole art, another artifact, and his artifact grew out of um, one thing that when this started, um, we were doing our own genealogies, and I gave Mr. Merrill um, each of my students' genealogies, and unbeknownst to them, he started picking the artifacts um, so there might be some links to their own genealogy. So Jack Carey is is related to... Um, Francis Scott Key, and um, so that's and the I, Wiki Man. I, I was trying in my mind. I was that's trying to figure out which student right. was Wiki Man. That's okay, right. got you. So, so he starts telling um, Ian Rigo, who has Healy as his artifact, that um, you need to check into this story because it's fascinating. Because he's <laughs> passing, he's passing as white, um, and he has a mentor who is aware that he is passing. Um, and I guess keeps his cover and he goes on to become, is it the president of Georgetown university? That That's his uh, brother. That's his brother. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then we found this other narrative that intersects there that um, Georgetown university and the man who is uh, uh, kind of mentoring um, this Healy guy, um, you know, is, is entangled in the, the Jesuits' own sort of uh, dark story here of of trying to get a Georgetown University out of debt by selling off slaves. So, um, so I have to interject because you know I'm I'm excited and passionate. Do you think this was the first time that your students became familiar with the art of passing? Yes, um, I mean I think that probably the African-American students were more familiar with this idea, but I don't think anyone knew that this was kind of a formal, larger cultural narrative and, and what that meant. And it got them thinking about in all of their artifacts, one of the things that they saw was that in an effort to achieve any kind of measure of freedom, there seemed to be, there had to be some sort of whiteness attached a, a co collaboration from from someone who is white uh, an access to some of the white privilege through through passing um an an agent in the underground railroad uh an abolitionist who uh you know or, or whatever it was it it was they started to see sort of the intersection of the narratives that were uncovered in their own artifacts um and that was this just produced this great kind of collaboration in our own class and conversation. How wonderful, how wonderful was that to watch that unfold 
simply through one controversy photograph. Oh yeah. And you know, what was really interesting is that the cultural narratives were not the only thing that were intersecting as we were doing our genealogy within the class um, on my heritage and ancestry.com. A few of us saw that we were actually literally fam, you know, in our family trees had intersected. So that was kind of interesting too. Which is what America is all about, correct? I know, exactly. Okay, yes. so so in your literature hat that you wear, because I know you wear many hats, mm-hmm. had you read, uh, had the students read uh, Nella Larson's seminal book? They haven't. So far, what we've read is um, Frederick Douglass's narrative. Since okay. we were looking at the course chronologically and we started with, the transatlantic slave trade um, and this idea of, of, of mobility always being complicated by race, beginning with, you know, the inception of slavery. Um, and then we continued with Frederick Douglass's narrative as, as um, you know, something that's actually I was teaching in my AP comp class as well. Um, and then we moved into Toni Morrison's Beloved, which, you know, obviously was written much later, but it's set during the time period that we had reached from 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, through mm-hmm. um, after uh, Reconstruction. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so from there, we will go to Richard Wright's Native Son. Ah, okay. So uh, now there's no time for them to read Nella Larson's work, but they could watch on their own the Netflix. Um, exactly. Uh, and there's, con- there's been con- uh, Zoom uh, lectures their articles. So this yep. whole concept of passing has really been blown up recently. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And it gives us a chance to go back to my famous Horstead's cultural onion theory and peel back layers uh, after layer with other families where you can uncover this art of passing. It's definitely been part of the conversation um, because there's sort of tracing tracing a line from the beginnings of slavery into to all the way to where we are right now. Right. And part of that conversation we talked about was the one drop rule. Yeah. Right? Um, during, during slavery, if there was any evidence, um, you know, of having any connections to slavery, which we knew move, move through the mother, you know, the matrilineal line. Correct. Um, Correct. Uh, it, it, thanks to rape being an essential piece of, of uh, slavery, the institution yes. of slavery. But um, we could see that, that with passing, it's just sort of an extension of that idea that it, it, if, if you can kind of not have any physical evidence that this is in your background, you know, the, the further you could kind of get in society. And I think it's really interesting. It's, it, it ta- we talked about this in class recently, where someone made the remark that they didn't think that we had moved that far from this idea in that we still as a society, if there is any kind of evidence of, of a connection physically, you know, to, to an African-American heritage, I don't think our country allows us to pass as white or identify as, as white. Um, and, and, and that's kind of, those are the questions that were raised, you know, someone brought up uh, uh, Obama as our first black president, who is equally white. 
Um, and then we tried to think of anyone who uh, would be biracial, who could identify as white. Um, they couldn't come up with anyone. So one, here we go again, one rare Carter Z photograph in Nan Jack and Company's archives creates this firestorm of great a conversation, conversation, interaction, interpretation, and a brand new way of thinking mm -hmm. about the racial spectrum. And I wanna, I wanna read you a quote from Nella Larson, okay? I think you will love this. <clears throat> With regard to her seminal work, Passing, she said, it's funny about passing. We disapprove of it at the same time, condone it. It excites our contempt and yet we rather admire it. We shy away from it with an odd kind of revulsion, but we protect it. That's a lot yeah. to chew on, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, I almost think that you could say the same thing about people of color and, and you know, the perspective of them from, from whites. It kind of reminds me of what Douglas was saying in, in the letter that I had, you know, about here the South can't deal, traditionally could not deal with living, you know, without the presence of, of the Negro of the Negro, right. right? And then with the streetcar, it's like the segregation of the streetcar, it's sort of, but at the same time, they can't tolerate them. And so they well, have to have separate and, cars. And so I love how, you know, we, we at Nanny Jackie Company worked very hard to, to curate the right type of artifacts that we thought would lend themselves to these type of dynamic interactions. So I feel really excited and proud that we did a really good job of culling the right kind of artifacts because mm -hmm. there's so many of them. Um, this the the other one you said you asked about too. The other the other artifact that I I loved kind of watching this one student um, respond to it, and that was uh, Jalen Henderson um, had the artifact um, with that was the letter in a which a slave had come to this white man and asked him. To be purchased and then the white man wrote the letter saying hey can i purchase this this slave um, and Jalen was was asking all these really interesting questions about how is this norm that a slave would ask someone to purchase them and um and so he started finding out that in fact you weren't safe as a young black man anywhere unless you were owned Okay, so stop right there. That's such a deep that 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 goes all over the place. In present day, where is the black man safe in America? Right. I don't yeah. feel safe on the road. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel safe driving into the campus of Loyola Blakefield. <laughs> mm -hmm. I see a police officer. I go in a different direction because I do not want them following me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go into stores where people are going to follow me around the store. I'm the same man whether. I have a suit and tie on or if I'm in my casual jeans and a, and a, and a Baltimore Ravens hat. And, yeah. and let, let, me, let me go somewhere else with you um, with regard to that comment. Um, we selected the uh, piece for that young man because of his family heritage coming out of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he did find that, that was the other the discovery was where um, in, in this particular plantation, um, 
they re make reference to a man and they say, oh, it was formerly owned by this particular man. And it turns out that when he did research on exactly where this was, once he found out who owned the property, um, it was very close to where his family was from. And this was what you and I had talked about when we were trying to put together this groundbreaking collaboration where it would have some level of, of intimacy that would resonate with each student. And this, this worked out perfectly, did it not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the other thing is we have a surprise that um, we will put in the folder. Um, I'm holding in my hand right here uh, some typed letters. The last letter that I have from the, the White family is 1897. Okay, so right, so that's, yeah. So, so this will excite him even more because you start off um, in Maidenhead, New Jersey in 1770 and you end with a written letter, July 19th, 1897 from Trenton Junction, New Jersey. And it's all about the original document discussing the young enslaved gentleman. And we even have an account ledger that lists the names of every, the, the first and last name, the surname of the people in the town, and it lists how many enslaved folk they owned. So this is such a larger story that gives you different themes, a path that you can go down to research and interpret. And I think it will also, um, he would be very interested in that because one of the things that he was struck by um, is sort of why is it that this young boy was such an appealing person? Why did this man go out of his way to purchase him and, and pay a very good price for him? Um, and it's an interesting piece of the story to see that this was held on by the white family yeah. for so long, maybe to suggest that there was, you know, this is an image that they can perpetuate of the benevolent slaveholder. Right. But um, we just don't know. We, we don't know. We don't know. My student is convinced that there's there's a subtext there that there's I love it. I love right? it. He's like, I just think there's some other reason that this man had a particular interest in this slave, um, even questioned if it had something to do with other slaves he wanted or maybe, you know. His mother, I don't we don't know. We don't know. Oh, but, and um, and, and, and I, I love the fact that he's allowing his mind to just um, mm -hmm. be expansive and, and go down these different um, thought patterns and, and speak his mind. I think yeah. this is a wonderful exercise for him that he can now utilize in any other class or any mm -hmm. other situation in life that confronts him. The only other thing with this letter I want to, I mean, this, this particular case I want to add is that the Negro boy's name was Jacob. Mm -hmm. uh, what we don't know, and it's, it's not unusual that we don't know the surname of Negro boy Jacob. Uh, and for future, he may have taken on the name um, Herbert Mercer. Mm -hmm. We just don't know what happens to him. It's very difficult to be able so would to- Would that show up in the census if this was the property of, of the white man? If possibly, he was the property? Possibly, but sometimes there, there are reasons why enslaved folk were not documented in the, in the census. Um, and that's the difficulty of primary source material. That's the difficulty of limited um, records that were properly preserved. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it just, it's almost like an open ending, open end detective case that may not ever be solved. 
Right. Um, so because of time, I got to move back to Douglas, though, because um, Douglas is really what led you to reaching out to Nanny Jacking Company. With regard to the letter that you have, that opens up so many other questions because the person that, that uh, sent the initial letter to Douglas got to meet Douglas mm -hmm. in, in Washington, D.C. Also, uh, he writes a paper on Douglas while he's a student matriculating at Berea College, which, which we have the paper. We, we also have other letters where he's writing to his future wife or wife discussing the impact of Douglas in DC. So the, when you have some more supporting primary source pieces, it cuts down on the ability to have to hypothesize or stretch your brain and go somewhere because you can actually follow the research path from the letters, the postcards, and the books that are within this Woodford family archive that we're sitting on. I kind of got stuck on the dates in that letter. I sort of went down a rabbit hole because I was very curious. The tone of that letter, it was, it was written 1892. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, it, it really, I started looking at Douglas's timeline and you sense in that letter that he's near his death right. um, and I, I love that you pointed out the line in there that um, you know he he gave some suggestions as to how he thought this kind of segregated streetcar issue could be resolved um, but he punts to the younger generation and says you know First of all, we need to appeal to the public rather than to the courts. Secondly, the railroad could always use our money and perhaps we need to save it, not ride the streetcars and, uh, and focus on our own self-improvement and education and purchasing property and things Which like that. Which we to do today, right? I know. Over a hundred years right? later, the words of Douglas should be resonating so, with all of us. Exactly. And to follow the money, right? right. Uh, and, and, but finally he says, but I know this is a battle that it, it, it's, it's time to turn it over to those who were, to, who were young. And, and see, like you said earlier, this is three years before his um, death. Mm -hmm. He'd been fighting a good fight for decades, for generations. Uh, and, uh, you know, how can you not respect him allowing the up and coming or the next uh, social justice warriors and activists uh, a chance to do what they need to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the other part that I think we really should kind of tie into this is with this anti-separate coach issue that they were discussing, it's the precursor to Plessy v. Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And just this week, January, 2022, the governor of Louisiana just pardon Homer Bussey. Oh, right. And had his descendants at the signing of the pardon. So wow. look at how a historic letter from 1892 has a direct connection to something that is in the news all over social media in mm -hmm. 2022. Yeah, yeah. And, and so this, this whole um, African-American voices in the diaspora 
and Artifactual Journey um, with Nan Jack and Company is a prime example of how when great minds come together and can create a learning opportunity in a unusual way that involves historical artifacts, technology, literature, hands-on and virtual uh, and is interracial to boot. We were in no way pointing the finger at the white folk in America and all their misdoings. Um, we were not trying to make the students that, were, that are white in the class feel offensive or defensive. We were merely presenting a factual perspective through the lens of primary source collections. And it's just created some synergy, some chemistry, some mm -hmm. momentum. Uh, and I, I just have to give kudos to you because this is really coming from your vision, your passion, your expertise. And you had enough um, oomph to go out and figure out what consultant could you bring to the table that could add something to what you had already started. And I just think this is the beginning, and I hope this is the beginning of a much more formalized and a larger partnership where um, this method can be replicated, can be expanded, can be um, greater utilized by um, other classes within the humanities realm and just other grades, period. We are really working with the 12th grade, correct? Yes. With, mm -hmm. with seniors. Mm -hmm. um, with seniors. And it's, it's kind of exciting because they have paid attention. They have not appeared to be bored. They haven't uh, mm -hmm. appeared to have been bored or, or slacking. They ask great questions. Uh, mm -hmm. I love getting stumped. Anytime I can get questions that I can't answer or that mm -hmm. I have to do some research on, I feel right. that then we're being successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I think for them seeing that their, that their work um, has real application, right. You know, right. that they can participate and have something to offer in this larger conversation yes. um, is so valuable. And these skills really are skills that they're going to, to need to live, you know, and, and practice in their daily lives because every day we're faced in trying to find what is true. Every day. And every some of us, some of us more times during the day than others, right? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we have these phones attached to us that are really not generating what is true, but it's what they've been tailored to kind of, affirm and what we already believe. And right. so there's real work involved. And to see them doing this this work and really digging deep. It touches my heart. Yes. Right. And really challenging the words on the page and asking these questions and what do they really mean? And and really looking at words that are coming from not someone else writing about a black man, right? But the actual primary source. Right. Um, it's it's a different process in approaching it. Um, it's a more rigorous process, and it it as a result, I just think it yields so much more. And um, and I really see this as as the work that they're doing um, in kind of participating and changing the narrative that's out there 
This is what we ask them to do at Loyola. When we say go out and set the world on fire, yes. this, is, yes. this, is, this is exactly that work. So uh, I, I think it's just the beginning, you know, um, not just in terms of the collaboration with you, but uh, in, in their own kind of education and, and transformation. This is, this is the beginning. I, I think that you said that so nicely. And as I wrap this up, I, I want to go back to Wikiman. I'm going to always love that nickname. Um, when he asked the question about how difficult was it to be a black commercial photographer right. um, after the Civil War, you know, in the Reconstruction era, that was absolutely brilliant because that lets you know that he really was taking his assignment seriously. Researching and thinking, and actually projecting himself into the footsteps of this Greenwich photographer who ultimately painted a magnificent portrait of Francis Scott Key, one of the best yeah. ever, by the way. Um, right. it, for him to come up with that kind of concept, mm -hmm. you know, I was so excited when he said that because that opened the floodgates for me to share some other knowledge about the difficult and important role that the Black commercial photographer played in documenting the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. so, That's right. So this has been, as usual, uh, all of our Artifactual Journey guests uh, are excellent. You, you're no different. Um, as a matter of fact, you may be even a little bit better than excellent. Um, it was a great conversation, and uh, I hope that we can come back and have some more on similar and other topics at a different time. So kudos to uh, Dr. Jane Donovan and the folks at Loyola Blakefield in Baltimore County. And of course, kudos to <clears throat> Nanny Jack and company uh, for developing this outstanding archive and uh, finding ways to utilize it to tell the truth one artifact at a time. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, but you know, my bigger thank you was thank you for coming to my class and for really changing the lives of these, of these young men. And uh, one man at a time, one young man at a time. And, and not only before I bounce, also some of the administrators that sat in on the program, I think we're beginning to change them as well. So it's not just the students, it's mm -hmm. the staff administrators as well. So it's a right. whole campus kind of cultural change that we're trying to be a part of. That's right. So there you have it. I thank you very much and take care and we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.